0: Welcome to See the Change podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Ayala, Communications Director at See Change Initiative. This is a space to bring together community builders and change makers to hear the stories and inspire them to take action for social change. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe and connect with us online. Today, I'm joined by MP Mumelek Kakuk. In part one, we discuss what it's like to represent a marginalized community in parliament, her focus on access to healthcare and housing for Inuit, and why she believes youth will play a central role in racial justice in Canada. We also hear about her personal connection to the federal TB response in the 1960s. Let's dive in. Mumalak, thank you and welcome to See the Change. And I was hoping to get started to learn a bit more about your background, um, maybe a bit about where you grew up and how you um, got into public service. Definitely, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the time and
1: opportunity. So my name's Muminak Kakak. I'm 27 years old, originally from Baker Lake, Nunavut. Uh, and I am the Nunavut uh, Member of Parliament, the largest electoral writing in the world. So there's a lot of unique challenges that I face in that position. Uh, Leading up to that, I had graduated from high school in Baker Lake in 2011 and had gone to attempt a number of post-secondary institutions that just weren't a fit. Uh, I had ended up uh, going back home or going back to the territory and since I've graduated in 2011 uh, and hopping around, uh, places like Ottawa, Peterborough and PEI um, to end up back home and working mostly in human resources and mostly relation to Inuit employment plans. How can we recruit, retain and retire Inuit employees? In Nunavut, the uh, population is about 84, 85% Inuit. So um, that's something that was always Really important to me and the fact that uh, I saw from a very, very uh, early age that Nunavut definitely had its own challenges and I had been trying to bridge those gaps for a long time when I went to school in Peterborough I had wiggled my way into an HR job, because I had been presenting, this is how you can get students from Nunavut to your school here. Uh, these are the programs that you can advertise, this is what's applicable, what's not. And I was trying to bridge, I've always been trying to bridge that communication of this is why it works like this in the north, uh, and this is how it's done. And this is what needs to change. Um, So I've done a lot of that kind of stuff. And uh, I was asked if I'd be interested in running for member of parliament last uh, in August of 2019. So I was just kind of thrown into uh, whatever phrase you want to use. Um, but I was just kind of thrown into it and hit the ground running and I haven't really stopped since. So it's kind of just always been like that for me though.
0: So that was a bit of a whirlwind experience for you to to run for MP. What were your expectations going into that experience and how did that, did that meet your expectations? I tried really, really hard not to have any. I tried really hard not
1: to go in with any assumption of this is how I think it's gonna go. I tried my best to just take it as it came and and work with what I had in the moment. And I think that that was something that I'm really good at anyways, Um, but that was something that I had to learn really, really quick. Um, My uh, party compared to other parties, you look at the history, uh, NDP hasn't held a seat since Nunavut has even become official. Um, so a lot of our campaign work was uh, very community-based, very volunteer, very on the ground, very hands-on. I worked easily 12, 13, 14 hours every day. Um, I booked most of my meetings and interviews and stuff like that. It was it was absolutely Uh, nutty Um, but with all that being said it it was a a huge uh, opportunity for me to just really show people that you know it's time for change and and we need to see that and if I'm not going to be brave enough to step up to the plate then who is so um, it was and my mom is my biggest support and she was just kind of like why are you asking me instead of telling me? <laughs> Cause she was like, you do things like this all the time. I don't know why you're freaking out about it. Cause you know, you're going to probably end up doing it and that's fine. So, um, it was just, it just happened to work out in my life at the time.
0: That's amazing to have the, the family support. It's so important when you are entering a groundbreaking experience, like you said, first NDP, um, Holding in Nunavut and yourself as a young Inuk woman, um, that was different for for the political landscape in Canada. In addition to your to your mother, were there other leaders or other um, people in politics that motivated you or inspired you at the time? When I think of leaders, to be very honest, I think of people that often
1: don't get recognized officially and I believe that we need to start having the hard discussions as Indigenous peoples as Inuit that we have differences of opinion we have different views and uh, although historically we have shared the same set of values and beliefs that through colonization that that has changed Uh, I think that that's a difficult conversation that has needed to be had. So in terms of like, are there other leaders? I needed to find someone that I could more so fully believe in. And I, to be honest, don't know if I saw that or, can, or if I do see that. And that's why I felt I needed to step up to the plate. This is too much. This is enough. We have been facing these issues and challenges for too long. And our people are not being spoken for. Our people are not being heard. So when I think of leaders, I think of what I want to see, what I hope to see, what I envision. And to be very honest, I haven't really seen that to the capacity I want to. So now I need to be that. And in in doing that, that empowers other youth that think like me. And to me, that's way more powerful and way more empowering, way more uplifting than to be honest, at the time, maybe I could have told you someone, but now that I look back and think about it, I'm like, "Ah, me, (laughs) me, honestly, I I really wanted to help create a a vision and I really want to help create a vision and a future that people see themselves in and people understand that they can, they can do it too. Uh, It's, it's a matter of motivation and drive. And so uh, my, my leaders are Youth that I want to, I want them to see that they can do it too.
0: Absolutely. And, and I think your influence, your career, and your advocacy is very inspiring. So I think you have a really far reaching uh, impact um, for the political landscape and future for, for Canada. I, I wanted to kind of talk about your position as um, someone who represents marginalized communities in parliament. I was reading Stacey Abrams' book uh, recently, and there was a quote from her book that really stood out to me, and I wanted to bring that to your attention. And what she said was, as outsiders, we are expected to continue on as the system commands, primarily to preserve our ability to participate. And I was thinking about the double standards that BIPOC women almost always face in traditional kind of old school institutions. Would you agree with that statement? Did you ever feel hesitant to diverge from the status quo? No,
1: but I was in a very, very, very uncomfortable place and continue to be. Um, So even though I'm aware of, of what's happening, I don't think that it's It's a choice I know I'm fully emerging myself into and I stand there and I say I'm standing in an institution that was meant to kill me Um, and that there's something really empowering in that. I I think it's realizing that these spaces were created for 50, 40, 50 year old white men to be frank and and put it how it is Um, and that's how it continues to be and it continues to not work for anybody else but those types of and I, I don't mean to say all white men between 40 and 50 are all rich or whatever, but that's who is sitting around those seats and making those big decisions for individuals that they will never be able to comprehend what it's like to. Every racialized individual has a plan for different Interacting with different items in life. If you, if you or I get stopped and pulled over by an RCMP, we have our own plans of what we're gonna do as colored individuals. Uh, we have our own plans for when we go and we're talking to a healthcare professional, not getting the healthcare we should see. Uh, and and we have that. You know, I keep referring to that meme. Uh, uh, family Guy, where you know the lighter shades, it's good, and then the darker shades, it's bad. He's holding the card there, and that's how it kind of goes. That's how it goes in in Canada. That's how it goes on this side of the world. That we are looking at a group of people with an immense amount of wealth and power that are mostly white that will never ever be able to fathom what it's like to think about these things when they get pulled over by a cop or when they go to a doctor appointment, or when they're applying for a job, or when they're trying to find an apartment. They will never have to fathom what that is like to be uh, to go through those oppressive systems in a way that doesn't make sense for them because the systems make sense for them. So now we have these individuals making these huge decisions for other individuals that they can't fathom this this idea or comprehend what that kind of life is like. And so in turn, uh, people get upset, people get frustrated, people get mad, and then it creates this tension and division. So I I think that in terms of being in myself, being in these spaces, for me, it's just fully uh, not engaging, being fully aware and stating the fact that I understand the purpose of this institution and what it continues to fulfill. So for me that's extremely helpful. And I don't think I could do the job in in any other way. I'm I'm not oblivious to what the federal institution has done and continues to do to the North and Inuit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned there that um, access to healthcare and navigating the healthcare system as racialized people, and um, in particularly Indigenous people in Canada, is not an industry or a field that is uh, adapted, you know, in terms of culture or in really addressing historic trauma um, in in those communities. And so I wanted to touch a bit more about that, that health system, you know, COVID uh, in the past year has really exposed underlying systemic issues, and also highlighted concurrent health crises. Um, So, of course, the tuberculosis epidemic in Nunavut. Um, Do you ever worry now that COVID might be eclipsing those issues, you know, in a way highlighting them, but also taking attention away from them? I don't know if it necessarily kind of takes away
1: the light. Uh, it might be a little bit distracting, but I think it just kind of goes to show the overall issues that we're already facing and very uh, prominent in communities that COVID is just un, almost like another thing added to the list uh, in a sense, but we're actually having to live it real time right now. Um, at a capacity that nobody in the uh, across the globe could ever, you know, predict, we are going to be here. Uh, but I, I think that in terms of the healthcare system, people, and I find this a pretty ridiculous question, but people ask, you know, can we talk about things like healthcare and mental health if we're still talking about food, shelter, and water? And to me, you can't, you can't talk about. Helping an individual, if they don't have the basics, uh, it's almost counteractive to say, uh, let's give this individual mental health assistance, and then they're still going home to either their abuser or an overcrowded, they don't have any privacy or whatever it may be um, that is related to the overcrowding at home. So in COVID, what we have seen is that, yes, all these scary things continue to happen at very scary rates in the territory. But what we're actually seeing now is how COVID is getting in, can get into a community like Ahmed, spread like wildfire and just the seriousness of it. So I I wouldn't say, uh, I would say a bit of a distraction, but it doesn't kind of, it overshadows it for the time being, because we are currently living um, an epidemic. um, Whereas the TB epidemic um, is almost, it's normalized. It's normal for Nunavut to have scary numbers like that. So people aren't uh, as upset. But now that everybody's facing COVID, maybe we can have a little bit more push, a little bit more leeway to say, hey, look, yes, we have been saying this for a long time. And here's how it's affecting us right here, right now, in real time, just like it is for you guys too. So I think that's a huge difference is that TB is not affecting everybody uh, all the time. COVID is affecting everybody right now.
0: Yeah, right. Um, And and speaking about the tuberculosis epidemic, um, I think it's just important to know for the audience, that the rate of tuberculosis amongst Inuit is 300 times higher than um, non-Indigenous Canadian-born people um, in the country. So I I just wanted to make a note of that. And of course, the Inuit uh, communities have suffered immense trauma from the historic responses, federal responses to TB um, in the mid-20th century in particular. Do you, do you know um, people in your community that um, that had that experience? Um, so I can't speak
1: specifically to Baker. I mean, I'm from there, but my dad's originally from Kriya so my family's actually from a different region, um, but my my grandparents both did have TB. This is what people don't realize and understand. A lot of us have had relatives who have had TB and have been sent down. And many of us know little to nothing. When my dad was very young, my his mom got sent out twice from what he can remember. Sorry, his mom got sent out once and his dad got sent out twice. He can't really remember exactly how old he was uh, except that he was very young and that his dad went for about a year uh, the first time and nine months the second. Uh, and then his mom for, I wanna say 12 or 13 months. So imagine you have a parent gone for up to three years. You're, you have just one parent. Um, but what happened in that time Uh, I don't know. I can't find anything. I can't. We can't find anything. I've been and and this was kind of what started my uh, this is actually exactly what started my when I was 21, 22. uh, I realized that I didn't know my history. I was never taught my history. So I tried looking for my own family, any kind of paper document, any kind of and it took me a long time, but I realized after a few months, I was looking for validation from a white man point of view. I was looking for a paper trail, but I couldn't. I So I had done months and months and months of research. So both my grandparents have been sent down to Hamilton Sanatorium for TB treatment. I'm trying to figure out who, what, when, where, why I can find one admin card Uh, and discharge card uh, with specific dates for my grandfather with his name and e-number on it and I can't find anything else I don't know how they got to Hamilton I don't know where they stayed exactly the room number who they talked to who they interacted with did they learn like I know not we know nothing we know nothing and people don't realize how impactful that is because that's not you know that's I'm not talking my great 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 grandparents I'm talking about my grandparents who raised my father who raised me so in three generations we're talking about this really crazy thing TB that happened to not knowing much about it to you know them my dad you know they have my dad and my dad has me but there's this big hole there's this big unknown part of history for a lot of you know for A lot of things not just TB but like dog slaughters forced relocation all these horrific things we don't even know fully what happened and that's still a lot of unpacking to do for a lot of our communities so they're starting but it's a lot more than what people on the outside see and even the ships that took patients for TB were also ones that forcibly relocated individuals from Nunavik, northern Quebec, up to the high Arctic, Greece, Fjord, and Resolute Bay. Those were the same ships that forcibly, in some cases, took Inuit for TB treatment, that in some cases had a helicopter scouting the community area to look for anybody hiding that didn't want to get checked and forced to go down south. So there's all this crazy, crazy dark history that is only a few decades old. It's only like 50, 60, 70 years old uh, that a lot of Canadians don't know about. And uh, I think that more of those things are coming to light, uh, but not enough that it needs to be. So people don't understand why TB is 300 times the rate. People don't understand why Inuit face these health concerns. And there's just a lot of complex history there that people aren't aware of. That even Indigenous peoples and Inuit ourselves aren't aware of, and that's how well colonization and the federal institution, when it's working, it's magic. That's how well it it works. You don't even realize you're in it.
0: Right, right, and it it, it points to to decades, and I mean beyond decades of erasure of. Um, I guess in terms of liability for for those acts and and programs and the trauma caused by the federal government over um, over this colonial history, that like you said, is really not that distant from from the present. Um, I think uh, you mentioned like in in school, like really not having um, the information or accurate depiction of. Canadian history and I've spoken about that with a few other um, people that I've interviewed that you know I remember learning very very little about Indigenous people and Indigenous history in Canada and it was always presented as like ancient history there was really no discussion about what the um, present day impacts we shouldn't even be calling it history really when it's still something that's so prevalent today. And, and speaking about the the tuberculosis crisis eliminating it um amongst inuit is one of the the goals for for 2030 as one of the 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 health uh, priorities how important is this goal for for your writing for for your um, constituents and what do you believe is needed to achieve that goal
1: it would be more of how you raised the question um is- tuberculosis, uh, getting rid of tuberculosis in the territory important to you? Um, yes, it is, but it might not be a priority for a lot of people. But what is actually linked to TB, which is the overcrowding. Um, even though the rates are a lot higher, um, often, I find often, um, I shouldn't say often, but when I do ask t- people, do you, have you ever had TB or do you know that anyone that has had it? I hear no. Uh, just about as much as I hear, yes. Uh, whereas if I asked about suicide, everybody would say yes. I everybody would have been affected by that. So although the numbers are a lot higher, um, I don't necessarily. I wouldn't necessarily say that TB specifically is high up there for a lot of people. It would be a lot more housing, uh, suicide prevention, mental health resources, all the things that do tie into uh, preventing the spread of TB. Um, but definitely healthcare, and just even the fact um, a lot more Inuit think actively about TB and get checked, rigged. like it's, it's a lot more of a norm in the territory than it is in the South Dole, for sure. Um, there's just a lot more urgent, pressing, sad to say, issues and challenges in the territory that people are a lot more worried about.
0: Okay. So that's an interesting point that you're tying the, um, I guess the, the social circumstances to TB. So it's almost like TB is a symptom and the root problem is things like housing and maybe like food security and and things that lend to the health. Right. Um, I also wanted to to mention, just kind of to tie it back to Sea Change Initiative and the work that we do, um, especially for the audience, um, that Sea Change Initiative has um, a partnership with Illa and Clyde River. And what what the two organizations have done is to co-create what we call a community-first response to TB. Um, And the centerpiece of that is a TB empowerment workshop. So it's led by Inuit counselors in Inuktitut. Um, and I guess my question about that is, how can Inuit better engage with government responses to health crises like TB and COVID, and maybe some of the underlying causes of those crises?
1: I think it's a flip. How can the government better engage with Inuit because that's where the problem is? It's never an issue of Inuit wanting to contribute or be involved or help. It's it's always been the other side. There's never been a lack of wanting to work together or uh, unwanted to together. <laughs> the opposite word of, you know, it's it's never been expressed that, you know, we do not want to work with the government. So um, the government has always, always and continued to horribly fail Inuit. And we see that throughout TB and the evolution of that, that's healthcare, lack of healthcare spaces and infrastructure and lack of access to affordable living and safe spaces and clean drinking water. That's the Fed's fault. That's a federal institution has never uh, adequately Funded Northern communities ever. The federal government only ever does something for indigenous peoples when they are under international pressure. We've seen that through things like the the UN declaration, through any kind of protests or any kind of movements like that. We've seen the federal government do things most for indigenous people, good or bad under international pressure. So back in the cold war around the 1945, Americans came to Northern Canada and said, oh, look, Canada's not taking care of the people up there. They put it in the media. The federal government got scared the wits out of them. And they said, oh, goodness, we need to go up there and claim that land. So that's where we started seeing forced forced relocation. So since since the beginning of that relationship, the federal government has given way less than the bare minimum to and, and has created such a perfect situation that now they have been able to leave Nunavut for 40, 50 years, 60 years. And it has created such division and turmoil within our communities. We spend a lot of time mad at one another instead of the, the institution we should be mad at. And that's what I mean. And, and that's how well colonization works. So I, I have never seen Inuit not want to work with a party. And I I, I, don't, I don't understand, to be very honest, how more Inuit aren't raging. Like, I have some days where I don't understand how I can do my job so calmly, but I look around at other individuals who have been in this fight forever. I look at John Amakwalik, who was forcibly moved from Nunavik, to Resolute Bay and now, and has changed Nunavut for better and has helped so many Inuit and so many Northerners in so many ways and is such a leader, but had gone through all that turmoil. You know, I think of people like Romeo Saganash who had went to residential school, who had been through all of that and had to stand in the House of Commons and watch the UN declaration get shot down. Like, could you imagine being so willing with your life to work with an opposite party that has done nothing but create turmoil for your people and still, you know, be expected to? Well, how can we work with you? No, it's how how you should be working with us and what you should be giving to us for the last, you know, all this injustice that we have seen. Uh, So, For me, it's a lot of my conversations are how can we get federal institution and federal positions and those types of ideations to understand that this can be a back and forth thing? Yes, but it's more you upholding your end because you never have.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think we can look back at the events in 2020 and see that there is um a momentum to speak more about injustices in different racialized communities do you feel that that momentum can be harnessed to advance um i guess the moves that are needed to um, to bring justice for the inuit community i think
1: there's a couple things that need to happen before we even start having those discussions i think Canadians need to be aware uh, made aware of the Canadian history when we don't share those aspects of like we've been talking about this is only a few decades old and this isn't a long time ago and this is you know I'm speaking about the generation that is raising the youth right now Um, that it's there's a couple of things Canadians need to be educated on Canadian history but also, a lot of a lot of people in general, I think, just aren't aware of how systems work and how to navigate them. But I find in the North, uh, even more so, uh, the lack of education. Uh, when I did the housing tour, I had realized that a lot of people just simply didn't know how to take care of a home, didn't know that. You should put your bathroom fan on for 20 minutes after a shower to get all the, you know, get all the moisture out of there. Uh, There were vents, a lot of vents covered in the furnace room that was purposely put there to have the house breathe. You know, so I kept posing the question, well, whose job is it in colonization when Inuit were forced to move from an igloo to a home, uh, to a really crappy home? Whose job was it to teach them how to care for this new home that they were forced into? Uh, so that's that's my thing lately. Who's, whose job is it? Because I don't think it's a part of an entire group of people who were forced into a situation. Now it's their job to have to learn how to live in it. Uh, I don't think that's fair. To me, that doesn't make sense. I don't think it should be put on uh, Inuit to, you've been forced out of this way of life into this way into all these crazy systems that you were never taught how to navigate, I think we need to start there. Uh, A lot of people, um, even just you know my role as a member of parliament, uh, people thought during my housing tour I could wave a magic wand and get them a new home and that's not how it works. Um, So I think there's just a lot of unawareness of even the lines of jurisdiction So even before we start having these conversations about, oh, how can we work together and what should we do? We need to get to the starting line of, let's get people aware of their rights and let's make Canadians aware of their history.
0: In terms of raising the awareness, building awareness um, with non-Indigenous Canadian um, residents, uh, where, where do you see that starting? Is that in kind of the mainstream schooling system and how how do you think we can reach people that are you know adults now middle-aged like i mean we were going back to systems that are spaces that are predominantly for older white men how can we reach those those folks and and promote that education outside of a schooling system i guess i find in society we encourage kids and youth
1: to learn and to continue to grow but it seems like once we reach some sort of level of adulthood whatever level that is I haven't figured it out but people start to become less receptive less likely to it's really hard to teach uh, it's really hard to unteach racist ideations once those are things are taught um so I this is going to sound really mean, but that's okay. I often don't spend a lot of time in that area. Uh, I spend a lot of time with often youth. Youth are so open-minded or just open-minded individuals in general. I think that in order for us to change conversations, and and I wonder this often too, do we need to get to such a point of division? And um, do we need to go through... a a lot more hurt before we realized a lot more, we have a lot more in common than not. Uh, I looked at what happened out uh, Mi'kmaq territory uh, out of Nova Scotia and I went to school PEI and I, for a while, didn't understand why I felt so uncomfortable there. But really, I find on the East Coast, there is such a lack of racialized individuals. They don't even know how to interact with us a lot of the time so I had you know I had friends I'd gone to school with that were messaging me about what was going on and I was like whoa 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 you're messaging me because I'm the only brown friend you have and now you're gonna ask me about a situation I know nothing of the history I know nothing of the treaty I know nothing of so like even just thinking of that I think there's such a unawareness and even just how to live around each other together like even that I think Canada seriously has some real hardcore racist issues they just haven't come to light yet because of how spread out and how like just how Canada's built there aren't a lot of black or brown people out on the east coast I was the only Enoch in my school and I never understood why I was so flippant uncomfortable until well after and that was, no one understood Canadian anything. And they should have, they should have been able to understand who I was and where I came from. But it's just, I'd like you mentioned, it's talked about like such a foreign, mysterious, like, as if it, I don't, I feel like we talk about it almost sometimes as if it's a, like we do, like the Egyptians or the ice age or the, like it's. Like it's this foreign thing people only make movies off of now, and I'm like, now nah, we're still here. We still do relatively the same stuff. You wanna come see? Like I can show you. Um, but for and and that's 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 the beauty. <laughs> this is really bad to say, but that's a beauty in how well colonization works. People don't think about these kinds of things because they don't see them because systems don't allow it to be seen. I I would love to say, and this is the really frustrating part: when Trudeau has the power and ability to make change, then put Canadian history, make it mandatory for your education system for your provinces and territories. You have the power to do that. So this mumbo jumbo about well, it's up to whoever else. No, it's not. That's BS, complete BS, because you can make it national standard to have to teach these things in these grades. Um, And back to your your point I I think in teaching those things in school um a child coming home with that information is going to be a lot more receptive to the parent than trying to teach the parent through another ways of teaching um so to me I think that's an easier way because it's easier from a parent to learn from their child um than it is to learn from someone else
0: a lot of the time right I guess that would um Kind of break down the the resistance or the defensiveness of not knowing um, when it comes from within the household. Kind of becomes more of a conversation in the family. Um, so it's a really interesting point that you make about focusing on youth and um, that they can they can you know they I think they're often underestimated in their ability to turn the tide on a lot of um, that social consciousness. Thanks for listening to See the Change podcast. This has been a See Change Initiative production, written, edited, and produced by myself, Tanya Ayala, music by Charles the Emperor. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from See Change Initiative, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. For more information about our guest, check the show notes for more links and resources. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.